It's Thursday, September 10th. Welcome to Market Fool. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio and Motley Fool Rule Breaker, Simon Erickson. Thanks for being here, man. Happy hey, Thursday. Thanks for having me, Chris. Um, I don't know if you heard, there's a little company called Apple that had an event yesterday. We're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about what's been going on with, with some of the stocks in your universe. But let's start with Lululemon Athletica. And on the surface, this appeared to be a pretty good quarter. Second quarter sales up 16%. Profit fell, but there was still a profit. And same store sales up 6%, which may not sound like a lot until you realize that we just went through two straight years of falling comps for Lululemon Athletica. So, again, on balance, this appears to be fine, but the stock's kind of getting kicked in the butt a little bit. What's going on here? <laughs> it appears to be some shear to the fabric at Lululemon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's start with the good news. They did beat on earnings, beat on revenue for the current quarter, raised the four-year guidance too. Market tends to like that kind of stuff. But then they also cut back third quarter guidance as well. They came in a little bit light versus expectations. They're assuming they're going to make it up in the, in the fourth quarter at the end of the year here. But still, the results for this quarter were pretty good, and they beat expectations. But here's the beef that I have with Lululemon, Chris. Uh, you've got new CEO, or semi-new CEO, Laurent Potdevin, has stated several times he wants to diversify the product line of Lululemon. He wants to have and go everyday wear. Wants to focus more on teens. Wants to focus more on men's apparel, the ABC shorts, stuff like this. Which sounds great on the surface, but you got to keep in mind, Lululemon is incredibly profitable because they were selling black yoga pants for $100. <laughs> you know, and as soon as you start getting into different product lines, you got to get manufacturing processes for that. You got to hold inventory for that. You got to make sure it sells, which we all know fashion is fickle anyway. And I think that this, in the long term, could work very well for them. But I'm a little skeptical because I think with 6% same store sales, you've got to make sure that you're in the limelight for fashion. I'm not sure how long of long term a strategy that's going to work. How are they doing in terms of online sales? Because it seems like they were a little bit late to the game on that and then started to build a little bit of momentum, albeit off of a low base. Are they still? Is that still moving in the right direction? I guess I think so. Uh, that's the direct to consumer channels what they're breaking out. I believe it was eighteen percent of total revenues this year. Don't have the number in front of me, but I think it was right around that. Uh, law of large numbers: as sales increase, the percentage in absolute terms will decrease. But that is one thing that we do like to see about Lululemon is that still, you know, twenty percent of revenue around that area shows that customers like this brand. If you're buying yoga pants online, you probably have already gone to one of the stores, checked them out, know which, which fabrics you like, know what styles you like, and then you're buying that online, which is in better margins, much better margins than you have in the bricks and mortar stores. So I think as that catches on, if we keep that at around 20% of sales, that's, a, that's actually a good sign of this business performing. It, it, I think it's a testament to the run that the stock has had over the last year that even with this drop, and as, as of this moment, stock down about 12% today. It's still quite handily beating the market over the last year. You're still up 24% over the last year. Is this is this an expensive stock? Is this a, a, where is this stock right now? Keeping in mind everything you just said about sort of your beef with the the leadership. I mean, I think the the question of whether it's expensive or not is is how well they expand internationally. Lululemon is still mostly a Canadian U.S. concept. It's not really you know tackled a whole bunch of the international markets. 
I've looked on on their website and looked at some of the uh, the other stores that they're they're talking about the concept stores in other countries, and it seems to be catching on. And if it does catch on and they can keep keep the same momentum like they did for so many years in the U.S., then it's not an expensive stock. But if you're still hovering, you know, mid single digit same store sales growth, you don't get that international piece. I would argue the opposite. As I mentioned at the top, Apple had their event yesterday. Uh, the TV seems to be getting a lot of attention in the media. There were upgrades to the iPhone 6, the iPad Pro, which apparently is for business, which comes with a pencil, which I'm sure plenty of people are going to snap up, despite the fact that there were a lot of people, at least on Twitter yesterday, very quick to trot out video archive footage of Steve Jobs, I think from 2007, sort of poking fun at other products having a stylus type pencil but a lot of products rolled out relative to past events what did what stood out to you well combining the the iPhone 6s and the 6x 6s plus and the iPad Pro let's look at the mobile devices that, that Apple's coming out with the bottom line for me is is these features that Apple is incorporating into mobile products could be very good for the company because it's going to raise margins and I back that up by, by just a couple things reviewing the products. The iPad Pro now is claiming to have chips that are 80% faster than portable PCs. They've got four speakers in the iPad Pro. They've got the pen, which is another feature. And then the iPhone, you've got now this kind of pressure sensitivity for, for touching the screen, which does different stuff. And and all of these features, I mean, now you've got the iPad Pro fully equipped is costing over $1,000 which is much more expensive than most desktops whereas if you looked back you know years in the, in the in the past it wasn't that case so the question for me is are mobile devices becoming our new desktop computers that we do everything on rather than just we use on the airplane when we're bored for a couple hours and i think if this these new products for apple actually do sell well we still need to see how they're actually selling the market but if they are selling well they're improving margins because they're higher price points. And I think it's just showing that mobile devices are becoming more and more ubiquitous, but they're also doing a lot more dis- features. I think it's bad news for anybody that's that's trying to make money off of desktops right now. Yeah, if you look at the price, let's stick with the phones for a second. If you just look at the pricing of the phones, Apple has done a pretty admirable job of bucking. Uh, I want to say trend. It's not really a trend, but sort of bucking almost the rule of technology, which is that uh, consumer electronics get cheaper over time. We've seen that with televisions. We've seen that with computers. Apple's really done a nice job of keeping whatever is the latest version of their phone pretty expensive. And you know, you were always talking. This is a hardware company. It's just a phone. It's it's a, you know. When you're able to command higher prices and people are willing to pay for them, the argument of it being a commoditized hardware company breaks down. You know, if you can throw on bells and whistles, 12 megapixel cameras, and you know, there's a lot going on. We're looking at at rule breakers right now of how humans are interacting with electronic devices. We've seen retinal scan to scroll through web pages. We've seen motions that will that will trigger actions on the phones. Voice activated search is now becoming more and more common. I mean, those would just be considered nice to have bells to whistles a couple of years ago. I think they're becoming more embedded in every one of these devices, and people are willing to pay up for it. A couple of housekeeping notes before we get to our final story uh, uh, regarding yesterday's conversation that Bill Barker and I had about Dave and Buster's. Uh, thank you to Kevin Dunn in New York City, who 
quickly hit me up on Twitter yesterday afternoon, uh, Brian, who emailed me, and Mike Morell in New York City, who wrote, it's official, you need to make the trek to DuPont Circle and experience Shake Shack, which does, for the record, sell alcohol. And not just any alcohol, they sell their own draft beer, which they created through the very legit Brooklyn Brewery, as well as several bottled beers and a surprisingly decent selection of wines. Granted, it's all overpriced, including the food, but that's to be expected when you're paying for the novelty of decent alcohol at a burger joint. You've tried Bojangles, which was an important first step. Now it's time to complete your journey with a Shake Shack fries and a draft beer at Shake Shack. So, so I, I stand corrected, and yeah, I really, I really got to get into DC and, and hit that Shake Shack. Have you been to a Shake Shack before? Never. I have not either. All right. You know what? Well, road trip. We'll do a little road trip in the next few weeks. Now we have a reason. Uh, we will certainly do it before. Uh, and this is the second housekeeping announcement, which is that we are going to South by Southwest. Very happy to say, I, I uh, wrote this on Twitter last week. If you follow Market Foolery on Twitter, you you've already know this, but. Uh, but if you're just hearing this for the first time, we are going to be going to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, in March of 2016. Myself, Simon, our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, Matt Argusinger, as well. We'll be doing a live taping of Market Foolery, and we'll be checking out all that the South by Southwest Interactive has to. You've been there before. I've never been. I'm. I'm. I could not be more excited. One of my favorite events in the entire year. Yeah, and I think that in a few weeks, the full schedule is going to come out. They've already, on the South by Southwest uh, website, put out some of the featured speakers. But the full soup-to-nuts schedule in all the venues is going to be out, I think, in late October. And that's when we can really start to think about not just uh, who we can go see, but hopefully who we can talk to, maybe interview, and et cetera. So, it, uh, more details to come. But uh, if you're listening and you're inclined to make your way down to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest, uh, definitely drop us an email, radio at fool.com. We'd love to hook up with some fools while we're down there. And Chris, as a sneak peek for listeners listening to this show, uh, I'm planning to introduce you to some Texas hot sauces while we're down there. Oh my! And some good Mexican food. So we'll have okay. to see your thoughts about several of those too. How hot are this? I like spicy, but I'm not like Bill Mann crazy level spicy. I don't. I don't go the. I don't go the habanero route. We can adjust. You don't okay. have to sweat out of your cheeks. <laughs> um, let's get to our final story, which is I was listening to uh, David Gardner's recent episode of Rule Breaker Investing, uh, his new podcast. And he was talking about five stocks that he likes right now, and one of them made me think of you, and that's FireEye, which is the cybersecurity technology company. And no secret that over the last month, the market's taken a hit. We've seen volatility go up, and S&P 500, the overall market, down about 7%, close to 7% over the past month. But shares of FireEye down around 15% over that time. And Amberella, which is the tech company, sort of the the technology behind the GoPro video cameras, those shares down around 40%. Now, these are two companies you watch closely. At some point, particularly in the case of Amberella, do you look at that and think, wait a minute, maybe, maybe this is worse than I thought? I actually do not. I'm a really, really big fan of Amberella. And, you know, we, we, we did notice that it's down 40% over the last one month. Over the last 12 months, this is still a stock that's up 82%. So, uh, widen the lens a little bit, look the longer term of what Amberella is accomplishing. As you said, they're building the systems on chip for uh, high definition video, which the first market has been GoPro phenomenally well. GoPro is selling millions of cameras every year. 
the top five cameras of the last of the last year were all GoPro models. So they're doing fantastic with that. But I think that there's some short-term pressure on Amberella right now that is emotionally disconnecting the stock and the company's performance from the share price that you're seeing out there. Remember that 43% of shares are publicly held, so they are emotionally volatile based on short reports and other things that come out out there. But if you look at, at Amberella, first of all, their markets, outside of action sports cameras, you're starting to see some of these other markets really beginning to take shape. They're selling already to AT&T and Comcast for home security cameras and continual monitoring. You've seen some commercials maybe about that stuff. And then drones is very interesting right now, too. You've got fully autonomous consumer drones and a huge market just waiting on the peripheral for commercial drones, too. Most of that is going to be high definition as well. And then autonomous vehicles, too. I mean, this is stuff that that we get really excited about in Rule Breakers when you've got a company like Amberella got a complete stranglehold on their niche out there been working on this technology for decades. And people like to point out, well, there's competition that's going to come in. This is another hardware company. I don't buy into those as much because Amberell is a step ahead of companies like a Qualcomm or an Intel as far as image quality and compression standards. And they keep raising the bar on themselves. So if you're a larger company, bigger R&D budget, you can go out and look at their patents. You can try to copy what they're doing. They've already set the bar a little bit higher and makes it even harder to displace, especially on the high-end models that want the best technology out there. So their connection to GoPro, you don't view that as a risk in the way that a company like InventSense, just to pick one, was really pretty dependent on Apple their event, you know, that's one of their vendors. And so once Apple says, we don't need you for this new gadget, then they're hurt by that. You don't think that Amberella is in the same position with GoPro. I mean, obviously, they like being with GoPro, but if all of a sudden, a year from now, GoPro says, you know what, we're going to go with a cheaper vendor, slightly lower quality, et cetera, they're not going to be hit by that. They're more diversified. Well, I think this is a, this is probably a two beer conversation. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but my, my personal opinion on Amberella is that it's fundamentally a different product than what Invincence is selling. Okay, I think that that when you've got big big customers like like Apple or GoPro, a lot of the times is you just want to be able to replace a vendor with it with a cheaper option or something that you can get a better price on, et cetera, et cetera. But I think with Amberella, that's kind of the key to high-definition video. You need a high-definition video codec and compression and all this other stuff that's working behind the scenes, or you're sacrificing your quality. And GoPro doesn't want to be a Tier 2 supplier. They want to be the best image out there. They're now working on virtual reality and drones and stuff like that. And if GoPro's sacrificing their brand image out there with going with another uh, vendor other than Amberella, that kind of changes our opinion of what GoPro is a company, too. So I don't think it's the same. Let me ask you about something that David Gardner said about FireEye that caught my attention, which was he was talking about the business, and this is uh, again cybersecurity technology company, and he talked about them not only not being profitable right now, that they're not going to be profitable for years, and what I'm wondering is first, honestly, the first question that leaped to my mind was, well, wait a minute, how many years are we talking about here? And I know. There's probably not a specific answer to that, but I guess the the larger question for and I don't own shares of of either of the companies we're talking about right now, but how long should someone wait on a company like FireEye 
to be profitable. Because you can look at a company like Amazon, and Amazon in 1997, people were saying, well, they're not profitable. And many people were saying, well, yeah, but they will be at some point. Personally, I would have thought that by now, nearly 20 years later, Amazon would be consistently profitable. And I know they can, at any point, pull some levers to make themselves profitable if they wanted to, and they choose not to, and that's fine. But I'm wondering if FireEye, I mean, FireEye is in a very different business than Amazon is in. So, how long, how many years go by before you look at a company like FireEye and start to ask, wait a minute, when are you going to make some money? Uh, two points on, on that question. The first is I think FireEye as a business itself is changing. So, we can't look at FireEye even two or three years ago and move that forward in our model to project future earnings. Reason being, they're focusing more and more on subscription models, fixing problems in the cybersecurity industry proactively through subscriptions that are recurring, high margin, and very sticky for customers, rather than just target calling up and saying, oh, darn, we've got a problem, come fix it. So I think that that's not really to pick good. on Target, <laughs> yeah, or in, in, insert company that's been right. hacked. Home Depot, here, right? Any number of the hundreds of companies <laughs> right. that have had credit card hacks, and, and a huge problem out there. So there's a huge market for it. But then the second thing to your other question of of how long should we wait? I think that the market right now is pricing in to FireEye shares an extremely long period of time that they will be unprofitable. Looked at consensus estimates just a, a couple days ago, and they're not actually. Though Street is not actually expecting an operating profit till the year 2020, that's five years out from now. But from my own model, I, I looked at revenue and billings, uh, which is the change in deferred revenue plus revenue for the current quarter, and look at how those are are scaling compared to operating costs. Revenue was up 56 percent last quarter. Billings up 57 percent. Operating costs up 22 percent. FireEye has spent so heavily on building out this dynamic threat intelligence platform, R&D side of the business, going out and getting customers proactively to sign up for, for uh, subscriptions, the SGNA side of the business, sales and marketing. And now that they've done that and they put all these costs into the business, you're going to see the bang for your buck for investors. I think that personally, they're going to show an, an operating profit 2017-2018. And when you've got a disconnect from expectations that's positive, that tends to work pretty well for investors. So, at some future quarterly earnings report, if you start to see that flip, that's going to be a red flag if the operating costs are outstripping the revenues. Yeah, because we have to see the bang for the buck for investment. And any money that FireEye puts into R&D today should be viewed as an investment for, for the payoff tomorrow. If you just continually put this as a sink for, for expenses, it's not paying for itself. But what we would be looking for is seeing those revenues, those billings, those new customers far outpacing the expense line. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs>